Welcome to A Handful of Hope, where we bring you heart-to-heart conversations with heart-centered people. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of A Handful of Hope. I am so happy and grateful to have Abdi Noor Efton with us here today, who, when the Civil War in Somalia began, Abdi was five, and he and his brother became the sole providers for the family while they also attended a mat- how do you say that word, Abdi? Madrasa? Madrasa? Madrasa, yep. Madrasa. Amidst a daily shelling and famine, Abdi had one escape, American movies and music. At neighborhood showings of Rambo, Commando, and The Terminator, Abdi learned of American, America and taught himself English and began a, to dream of a life in the United States. In his memoir, Call Me American, Ifton recounts his harrowing, extraordinary, and uplifting story. His love of Western culture and music earned him his name Abdi American. This became a liability when Islamic extremism took hold of Somalia, evading conscription by al-Shabaab while secretly filing stories for NPR under penalty of death. He stayed in Somalia until he had no choice but to flee. He smuggled himself into Kenya where a different but grinding life of hopelessness awaited. He spent days hiding silently in an apartment from raids by Kenyan police, once passing time reading memoirs and watching more movies. And then a stroke of incredible luck, he won the diversity visa lottery. Now a proud and legal resident of Maine, Abdi is advocating for the refugee rights. He's also a community navigator. He's on the advising council for Refugee International with some of America's most distinguished diplomats and prominent international human rights leaders. Abdi was Ted, TEDx, um, say? Amuskeeg. Uh, Amuskeeg, 2019 speaker. On January 17, 2020, Abdi's long life dream came true after he was sworn in as a naturalized American citizen in Portland, Maine. For the first ever Abdi's voting, first time ever Abdi is voting in the U.S. election, exercising his American rights, one which many Americans take for granted, but for Abdi, it is liberating to have a voice in America. Today's America and the travel immigration ban worry Abdi, a Muslim and former refugee and a displaced person. Abdi's dramatic, deeply stirring memoir is truly a story for a time and vivid portrait of the desperation refugees seek to escape and a reminder of why Western democracies still beckon to those looking to make a better life. Abdi, welcome and thank you so very much for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, it's, this is a true honor. And I have to tell everybody before we even get started, I am, Abdi's one of the guests I've been most excited about. I've read his book, Cover to Cover, Cover and it is probably the book, if I were to read, recommend one book, and you all know how much I like to read, I recommend everybody read. It is a story that is as inspiring as it seems almost improbable at times. And it's one that I could not put it down because it was just, I, it was such a great page turner and you found yourself absolutely shocked at the experience of what people went through in Somalia, Abdi's journey, his family's journey, and then how he was able to, to rise above and move through it all and make his way over to America. So I'm super excited for today, Abdi. And I want to start with just, if you could give people who haven't read the book yet, kind of a brief synopsis. Growing up in Somalia, you're about five, six years old, and you're guessing because you, in Somalia at the time, there wasn't a decided, you weren't actually having birthdays. So you've actually chosen your birthday, right? And so you're guessing that you're about five, six years old at the time that the civil war breaks out in Somalia. So just so people who aren't familiar with that, if you could give us kind of a quick summary of what that time was like for you. Um, you know, like every other child, I, I was born depending on my family, uh, mom, dad, um, 
they they had uh, my, my mom and my dad had their own previous uh, challenges you know where they lost everything that they owned um, in the nomadic uh, way of life but then they moved to the city and my dad had been basically hustling around um, he uh, was working as a, as a fisherman uh, bravely and then until somebody discovered him and said you really look good in this sports so let's get you into basketball so when my brother and myself and my sister were born uh, we basically had a house um, we had the protection of our family my dad and my mom were tightly uh, connected together and they supported uh, both of them had uh, provided all the support that we needed uh, and it's interesting because the only times that I cried um, and I had tears in my eyes were those moments when um, the, the neem tree that I was born under, which was still in our house, um, had, you know, birds used to stay there, they used to live there, and then the cats would come and eat them. And those, those were, to me, so traumatizing. I, mm. I couldn't really put up. As a kid, I would just talk to my mother and, and say, why is this happening? Why are these, you know, uh, uh, birds are why you know I don't want them to die you know I want them so it's interesting how I shifted from that kid kiddo who had tr been traumatized basically by the death of a, of a tiny animal um, a bird to someone who watched a man whom I know uh, in the corner of our house um, uh, we called him the snack bar man. He worked at snack bar and he's the one when I got a few cents I would go to and he would give me my favorite desserts. He was sprayed with bullets and he was face down in the middle of the dusty street. Um, and my dad goes on his knees and tiny, you know, skinny man had a gun point on my father's head saying, this is it, I'm gonna pray, spray with bullets. And my mom's crying and she can't control her tears and everything smelled like death and hell, right? So it's interesting, the, the shift that had happened, losing our house, losing a sense of community, neighbors sort of like hating each other, people scattered out, and um, that was the largest massive exodus that began in Somalia when I was five years old. However, my family don't have any connection outside of Somalia, so we can't go anywhere. And my mom had used all the skills that she had as a nomadic woman to save us kiddos while she was still heavily pregnant. She took us out of the city into the wilderness and where you know you escape from the gunshots and the militias who are storming into the cities, but we were exposed to wild animals, you know, mm. um, hungry lions, hungry hyenas, all the other predators that could easily eat me within one hour, right? It doesn't take that much. But then how my mom decided to stay awake but not only that, that she had to provide for us whatever she could find, sneaking around, finding some, some food, even if it's not a good food, that she would bring it to us you know, to make us eat. So that is basically the hero of my story. Uh, and and the, 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 um, the human side of the story is, is, is one that you will not be able to find anywhere else. Hollywood, of course, has made movies based on Somalia, but you're not gonna find this humanized part of the story, bringing to life the existence of humans and people who are everybody else. A mother is always a mother. 
you know, protecting her kiddos. And the kids are always kids. You know, we can cry for those pets that we have in our houses when something goes wrong with them, you know, and then we can, we can be stronger when bigger events happen that we lose our house. And so I wrote this memoir to really document the journey beginning, I'm five years old, I'm just crying because the bird is still there. I'm the one who goes to bed at six o'clock every evening, you know, um, and I'm the one whose father was, was protective and was strong and all of that to a kiddo at seven years old who becomes provider for my own family. So there's no sleep. I have to leave in the morning and say goodbye to my mother because you, you know, it was 50-50. You never know if you're going to make it back. You never know, you know, so whatever's going to happen to you. But at the same time, my brother and I held hands and walked up around the neighborhood um, trying to find water and food for our family. And in the evening, while the sun was setting, you know, we would just show up. And our sister was sitting there with my mother and my mother's eyes just, you know, I still remember so vividly. Um, and then with all the other events that have happened that I may not remember, it's my mother who has been able to... Um, and this is what I need to say. I'm one of the luckiest refugees alive. And I'm saying this because I still have my mother around. If you look at millions of other refugees, they have lost their family members. Moms have been lost in the, you know, in the process of the war. So for those who survive, they have just survived on their own. I could have done that myself, but I also have my mother to go back and tell me my, the stories that I have missed as a kid that she mm -hmm. remembered and the ones that I was not there for. So she and I teamed up and we became uh, uh, partners for you know, providing all the material and the stories that I needed in the earliest uh, you know, days of, of Somalia and the beauties and the nomadic life that my mom was helping me. So this book is um, it's engaging and it's a timely. Um, one reason because immigration is, is part of American story. You know, you can find it anywhere. The presidential candidates talked about it. Uh, Trump was elected mostly because he used immigration um, to provoke his space. Uh, you know, remember the walls being built. Remember the travel ban, where Somalia is one of them, right? And, um, and think about this, and America as, as a nation of immigrants. So if you read Abdi's story, which is basically my story, and, and you know, in my memoir, where I fall in love with this country, 10,000 miles away from where I was. I had no idea um, what the day-to-day -day American life looked like. I had seen Hollywood movies without ever going to school, no primary, no middle school, no pre-K, nothing. I picked up English and I did my best to gather and, 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 and bring together all the sentences that I needed to communicate, you know, eventually um, with the world without using Somalis. So this is, this is really been quite a journey. When my belly was empty, I would sit in the movie and watch you know, action films. Um, when I know that when the movie ends, unlike here where we have the privilege and luxury of coming out of the movie and driving up home and you have a, you know, a bed and a roof over your head and you have a fridge, I did not have all of those. Hmm. I remember walking out of the movie, watching an action film and then thinking, I have nowhere to go. You know, it's not safe. I don't even know. We don't have a house. You know, it's, it's, we, we just live on the, on the side of the street. So I am that one who has um, 
you know, dedicating my time basically to a language, um, mostly because I was so in love with music and American movies and that I wanted to become, guess what, an American. And my friends gave me the nickname, Abdi the American. So what did America mean to me? It was an idea. I did not see America as a Democratic or Republican. I didn't see America as an African-American, as a white, Caucasian, you know, Latino. That, that's not the America that I had built up in my mind as a kiddo. The way I saw it was this place that's so special um, that you can be Eddie Murphy or, or Will Smith, but also can be Bruce Wills and, and Sylvester Stallone. You know, I mean, you can be anybody with any, any skin color, um, but then you can thrive. You can be an actor, you can be a musician. Um, that was the America that I have built up. Uh, and um, and that, that has, uh, uh, you know, motivated me so much and protect, uh, uh, kept me from joining an army uh, because there was pretty good chance that I could have joined a local militia, which is so easy. And they, it, it's, you know, what else do you have? It's the one-way ticket. Or the other thing was what my mom wanted me to be. And this is where my mom and I really drifted apart because she was like, you graduated from the madrasa, great. So now I want you to go on the same path as your teacher, which means become his assistant and now start beating the kids and become this, you know, this uh, uh, dignified, you know, honored teacher um, because that's how you become so well-known and you can be a, a pretty good contributor to the community. So I refused that and I went into music. And in my culture, going into music was actually a bad thing, right? So I also describe these stories in my book. It's like, in America, if you get into music, your parents may go around and say like, oh, my daughter is into music. Oh, my son is into music. And nobody really goes bad. So my mom was so ashamed until she decided to kick me out of the house because I was in music. So I was caught up in a world inside Somalia, which was so hard to, to break through into the dreams that I had, which if I didn't get into music, if I didn't get into movies, I would not be where I am now. So it wasn't an easy journey. I, on top of the war and the famine, that was also, you know, those little human stories that have existed that um, I decided to document and talk about. Abdi, I want to talk to you a little bit about that because, and I think this is where your, your story becomes so incredibly fascinating. You're a, young, you're a young child and there's a huge famine. And so that leads to your family having to leave their nomadic homeland to go into Mogadishu, right? You get into Mogadishu and then the civil war breaks out. And then you and your family have to flee Mogadishu. And that's, you're encountering all these rebels and you talk about how they're pulling people out of the cars and just shooting them on the road. And then when you make it back into Mogadishu, you and your brother, when you're going to sneak out to find food and to try to get water, you're literally having to duck and dodge bullets because the Somalian rebels were just handed all these guns that were largely supplied by foreign countries. And they are learning how to use guns by just target practicing on anybody who is from a different tribe or a different clan, right? Because there was, there was there five main tribes or clans and your, your tribal heritage was a nonviolent one traditionally. And so they're just target practicing on anybody who basically is not like them and somewhere in there going through all this stuff trying to survive trying to get food starving at times you come across american movies 
and you're watching Rambo movies, you're watching Commando with Schwarzenegger, you're watching those, all those types of movies, and you start teaching yourself English. And I, so this is my question. I find it incredibly fascinating. And, and, and let's keep in mind, this is, he's not going to a movie theater with the popcorn. You had a, there was a lady in town, right? Or somebody in town who had this tiny little plate. Jack. Yeah, and she had a VCR with some old VHS tapes. And you would stay there for hours, rewatching, rewatching, and listening to try to learn English. What, what was it, Abdi, that you recognized that this would be a skill I could learn? Because a lot of people would just look at that as entertainment. But you almost, it sounds like you almost looked at it as an escape or a way out. And you recognized at a young age that this could be an essential skill that in your story largely saves your life. And, and leads you to being able to get out of Somalia eventually because you end up meeting the, the reporter and then that goes on to filing the stories with NPR and BBC and all this type of stuff, right? So what is it, what was it like that was going through your mind at the time that you were thinking, gosh, this, is, this, is, this could be a, a way out, a path out, like that would motivate you to learn English and, and learn it not in a traditional way where you go to a classroom and somebody's teaching you sentence structure and words, but you're literally as I understood it, almost ear to the television, listening very carefully, and then you're trying to translate it to everybody else, but you're, you're able to put these things together. So if you could talk a little bit about that, what was your psychology like? Why, why, was, it be, why was it such a, almost an instinctive thing for you that this was something you needed to do and that you were willing to work so hard at it? Well, I think the key word here is hope. Hmm that was missing in my life. Okay, so imagine, what was my mother telling me? Be, because of the war, because of the famine, because I lost my sister, it all came down to hopelessness where my own mother would say, let's think about heaven and let's think about the life after, right? So the life here, the one that we have, literally did not exist. We were invisible. Um, the U.S. Marines came in and, and pulled out and, and, you know, that was pretty much it. That hope that I wanted, I found it in that, that little tiny television screen. How did I do that, right? Mm -hmm. So, yes, this woman has opened this place up basically for enter entertainment. Um, and she had never imagined that a kiddo, Abdi, would just sit there and learn something and use it as his school. And, and she allowed me to clean the spider webs and, you know, the place because I didn't have money to pay for the movie theater. And she said, well, if you clean the place, you got the whole place. Just sit there and, you know, do whatever you want. So, I mean, imagine what kind of stories can you find in, even in action movies. So the thing is, the lady who ran the movie theater didn't have money choices. So she couldn't find comedy movies for us. She couldn't find serious TV series for us. She couldn't find anything else. So she had this particular seven pile, basically of, you know, of, of uh, um, uh, cassettes that were all action films. So within this action films, like think about what do, you, what do you see in the Commandos and the Terminator? What do you see in the Rambos? What do you see in, in Bruce Willis movies, you know, in Jack Norris movies? So the thing is, first of all, these are people that don't look like us. That's one thing. They are eating food that I have never imagined I could. I mean, imagine that scene when Arnold um, and his daughter are having breakfast. You know, there's the orange juice sitting on the table. Um, and when, when they're chasing around each other on this busy, beautiful 
streets where the police are coming up, you know, with their sirens going on. I was like, I know it's chaos, I know it's craziness, but if you are a child in the US watching that, you're familiar with every little bit of the story. You know what a cop is, you know what a mall is, you know where an orange juice is, you know, basically you know what kind of clothes someone is dressing up, you know, you know why, you know, the woman just dancing in, in, in the room, you know, have headphones on. I mean, you can, you can, you, this is the way that you live in, so you're not really so provoked, you're not interested. So to me, I was very interested. It's like, this is amazing. I don't have anything of what I see in this, in this film. What are they talking about? Can I just listen and really try to understand and memorize and repeat and you know, maybe try to play it over and over? Um, uh, and um, I, at first I didn't know I had the skills that I could do that. But when my friends circled around and they said, your memory is wonderful. You're going to tell us the story and you're a great storyteller. And that's when I realized I had the power. I had one particular power, which is storytelling, where it started right there in that movie theater where we sit together and I would say, oh, he says he's going to go and come back and kill the guy. And that's when Arnold says, I'll be back, right? So it becomes, it becomes this, it gives me some you know powers that i could not have ever imagined and then the next thing you know is there are women or girls who show up in in where i lived at the time and asking my mother where is abdi the american you know and then my mom would say do they really call you american i mean this girl is showing up and just saying so i know it looked as bad to them but it it, it was such a wonderful thing to have this image in town you know, where people will say, you're a great storyteller, you sound like them when you say the words, you know, you're, you're onto something, right? Um, and that's where it started. I was onto something. I knew that this was going to take me a path somewhere, pretty long path. Um, I had no idea how I would get to the United States. Usually it's a family sponsorship. You have to have a family member in the U.S. to sponsor you and bring you over here. I have no family in the United States. So how in the world am I supposed to come here? And then the thing I told myself is, maybe if I tell my story, learn English, and just now the way you tell your story in Somali with your friends, turn this into an international platform. Tell your story uh, by documenting your, your, you know, your stories every single day. And this would happen when I become 20 years old. As you read the book, you come to realize that, man, what started at 10 years old has really become sort of like the dream come true at 20 when my story was published by Washington Post on the Atlantic. And then I ended up on American public media. Like you could hear me on NPR um, when I was mm -hmm. still in Somalia. Um, so I thought that that was really an amazing um, power that I had and I latched onto it. Adi, that's, the fact that you, you, you linked hope in the movie Commando to that breakfast scene that Arnold and his daughter are having. And I know exactly the scene you're talking about. And it's funny because as an American, and I never considered this before, but I remember watching that as a kid. And I've seen that movie now probably three dozen times at least or so. And I'm watching that scene and it's, it's almost cheesy because you're looking at it thinking like, you know, Arnold's not the greatest actor, the girl who wasn't probably the greatest actor. So it's kind of this hokey scene and you're thinking, hurry up and get through that and let's get to the good stuff when Arnold's going to get the, go get the guns and beat the bad guys up. 
because you're abs- it's so familiar in Western culture in America, we're just used to that. We're used to the, the heroes going and you know, the bad guys are coming, they're going to win. And, and so those are such inconsequential details, but to someone who at the time is starving and is trying to find food, seeing that, I think that's such an incredible story that seeing the orange juice being poured, it just is completely almost inconsequential scene in an American movie a scene that plays out over American breakfasts every day that we don't even think of. And oftentimes we might even complain because the bacon's, the toast is burnt, the bacon's not cooked right, whatever it is. And, and we end up throwing the food away or something like that because we have that privilege in this country. That's hope to you. I, I absolutely love that. So I want to, I want to fast forward now a little bit in your story. So you're going through, and I want everybody to keep this in, in context too. So 10 years old, he starts learning English he goes through and he's learning it between 10 and 20. Now just think about your life between the ages of 10 and 20. He's learning the second language, self-teaching himself a second language at a time when he is still trying to evade getting killed. He's got radical Islamic, Al-Shabaab starts to come in. So Al-Shabaab comes in, runs out the militants that are in there. There's a power overthrow. The civil war is essentially stopped for a little bit, but now you have radical Islam takes hold. And so it starts to become a, a, a hotbed for Islamic extremism, right? And now where you were once a fear of being recruited by the militias, now there's this other fear that replaces it of being basically radicalized by Al-Shabaab. And in that radicalization process, they're training you to become suicide bombers, fighters, whatever it is. And part of the whole indoctrination process is is being told over and over again about how it's okay to die because when you die, you're going to have the promised land and basically painting this picture to young impressionable kids who have been without hope for so long that your greatest hope, your, your escape is going to be dying in the name of this cause. And then you'll be rewarded with eternity and paradise and all those types of things. Right? So you're, you're, this is all happening with it. And you're going to the Madarasa, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that because your mom still wants you to do that. You're suffering the beatings because you don't want to, you don't want to memorize everything. You don't want to do it all, but you're going in. So you, you're getting, what would they do? They'd hang you up by your wrist if you were tardy or you didn't do your lessons. You, you saw something, and this is what I think is so incredible about your character. And it actually now it makes even more sense that you shared that story about the bird. You're in this world where there is so much violence. And the thing that pushes you away from following that path that your mom wants you to go on so much is that you don't want to be that person that administers beatings to little kids. And I think that's so incredible that in a world that violence was so familiar and on the scale of violence that you're experiencing on every day, you know, a teacher whipping a kid seems pretty minor compared to the people on the streets just killing each other for whatever reason. Yet the thing that moves you away from that is because you don't want to become that person that hurts kids. Talk to us about that, Adi. Like where, how does, how do you feel that your character evolves that way throughout this? Because there's other people in the book that maybe aren't main characters, but mentioned like kids you would see that were in whatever group and all of a sudden they're carrying guns now or kids that your brother would routinely, he might get in a fight with and he would be able to beat up. And now you guys are having to avoid them because they're the ones with the guns. So with all this violence around you, how is it that you remain that 
integral character to yourself that you do not want to participate in the violence as you grow older? Well, um, as I respond to that question, I also need to answer the arrival of Al-Shabaab, which is a radical Islamic group, is sort of like under the service connected to religion. So the good thing about my family was my dad was not religious. This man was, was, a, was a nomadic man who had really spent most of, his, most of his adult life, you know, taking care of his animals. And then he met my mom, another nomadic woman. So I did not grow up in a household where anybody ever called my dad a sheikh or an imam, a religious leader. So I, I, I lack that, you know, identity. Um, and uh, that was really a huge part of my refusal to be dragged into something that I don't belong to, right? Um, for instance, you mentioned uh, there's a friend of mine who actually graduated right after I graduated from the madrasa, and he quickly joins al-Shabaab when al-Shabaab shows, shows up. And it's something that was he was he got encouragement from his family, uncle, dad, you know, everybody else to say like, this is it, this is the authority that we were looking for, and now we have it, and I want you to go right into it. And he gets into it, he gets a wife, and he comes shows up in my where I live and destroys my boombox because he knows me, right? It's just this kid that we play soccer together, that we hang out together, and that we were just a team, basically. Now everything shifted, and he knows I'm the idiot. That's, that's how they called us at the time, right? If you were dancing, and you were sort of swagging around, um, it, it became really difficult. But how, um, I think sometimes rejection is an answer. Um, you know, you don't have to be forced into anything. First of all, I did not want to become another angel of punishment. Um, mm. This is a, a, a nickname that I give to my madras, a teacher. Um, we nicknamed him angel of punishment and that's something he's very proud of uh, because the kids had to be beaten up so bad uh, if they make mistakes. Sometimes you don't even have necessarily to make mistakes. I was making the biggest mistakes in the world. Going to a movie theater when I was going to a madrasa, which is not permissible. You know, they didn't, you know, it, sh it shouldn't be that way. And my mom um, had basically given him a permission to hang me overnight. And if I passed, you know, if, if I didn't breathe anymore, if I, if that was the end of, it, if I died, you know, she would be okay with it, right? So that, that is how difficult it can be. Um, it's a matter of here or here. So I, I was right at that intersection at some point where I needed to be the madras a, a teacher assistant or somehow become this religious leader at some point in the future, or you're gonna pass on and, and you know, you need to die. And I defied those um, uh, basically by living on the streets after I graduated, uh, where I told my mom, well, you know what? I'm not gonna be here. Um, and uh, I lived on the streets. I don't think she was wrong necessarily. She had calculated herself and the future and she realized as long as you want to be a nice guy here, in Somalia, I don't want you to join the army. I want you to be a madras. At least be, be the kids, you know, beat the heck out of the kids. Other than joining a militia and then, you know, doing this drag, this, uh, you know, stimulant drag that all the militias were, were using at the time. And then it makes you look so bad. Um, that's where my mom was trying to be. And I didn't want either. I didn't want to be a madras teacher. I did not want to join a militia. So I had an option which my mom wasn't okay with. My madrasa teacher was not okay with. Just like, let me go to school. 
basically, let me go to the movies. Mm. Let me learn what I need to learn. And let me just make an art out of what I'm trying to do. I'm sure that I will come up with something in the future, you know, even if it, if it is getting into music and reviving the Somali music, or if it is, you know, doing something else. But the arrival of Al-Shabaab had just basically destroyed everything else. They bombed the movie theater. They criminalized music. Um, I couldn't go with my girlfriend to anywhere. You know, I almost got uh, killed for that, right? So there were, as you, as you look at the story, there were so many moments that I could have given up. Or, in other words, there were so many moments that my life could end in so many ways. Um, I tried everything to at least, you know, either reject um, in one way or another. It was so hard to reject Al-Shabaab because if you reject them, they shoot you in the face. So what was the best thing I could do is just hide from them. In your opening, um, earlier when we were talking about, you sort of touched that moment when I ended up in a group of, of young men who were being recruited. And the guy who sort of like was giving us the, the speech um, was pointing into his forehead and into his chest to show us how to kill an American. Mm. Think about this, right? Now, I was right there for that moment with hundreds of other kids. And we all cheered. I had to cheer. Unfortunately, you can't be quiet. They have their eyes on you and they can murder you. So that is the moment. Here is my dream right here. And somebody stands right in front of my eyes trying to shoot my dream in between his eyes, right? So it's as complicated as that. And I didn't have, you know, any more tears to cry, but I thought I need to not be part of these people. So in the dark, I just sneak out and walk through the bushes and come back to the city. And this is when I use a shovel and live in, in the dirt. Um, in, in, in the middle chapters of my book, I sort of like describe living in the city, but not living in a house, you know, where because of the constant bombshells and the flying bullets, you just have to be somewhere not above the earth. Like you have to, to hide somewhere. And that's what I- bug, a, Like a six foot hole basically, right? That you would sleep in and live in. Yeah, that's basically a grave. When somebody yeah. gets buried in Somalia, that's how long, how deep. So sometimes I, I feel maybe I'm just digging up my own grave. So something happens here. Nobody knows about you. Um, you can get buried here and then that's it. The same way that my grandfathers disappeared because we have no idea what happened to them. You know, it could be like that. I walked away from my mom and I was never sure if I would ever reunite with them. So, you know, it's, it was so terrifying. And I still live with those post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. Um, I was diagnosed with it. It's not something that I can escape away from. But I think the base of the idea of this story is um, um, there's always a way out. If you really see the target, if you know what you want to be, just fight for it. Um, and that's partly why when I speak around schools in the U.S., just share my story with them and say, if I could survive this, what do you think about you? You know, what, what difficulties do you really have? Are you going through some tough time because you feel like, you know, you feel like you're not really who you wanted to be. You're, you don't have what you wanted to be. Just think about these stories. And do you want to give up? And I had come across so many kids that I talked to who said, well, after reading your book, I have no way of giving up. So I'm going to do what I need. So this is so exciting because in the years to come, I just really have um, 
I'm looking up to some people and we'll see where, you know, where they happen to me in the future. Um, and I'm glad that it, it's a story that, you know, um, gives energy, um, motivates people. I, I, I 100% second that. And one of the reasons I would recommend all of you reading this book is because you will find, at least I did for myself, is every time you turn a page in this book, you find yourself questioning and literally saying that, gosh, if he can get through that, I can get through what I'm dealing with. And I would pick it up at times where I felt, you know, those moments of stress or overwhelm or whatever it was. And I would literally read one paragraph and I would be so blown away about what Abdi was going through that I didn't think it could get any worse or any more extreme or any more challenging. And then I would read another paragraph and it was just in that paragraph, he was going through something more harrowing than before. And it was just, it was, and I think it's such incredible. And so for folks who are looking for inspiration and perspective, some hope, uh, you know, the name, this name of the series is a handful of hope. And I think Abdi's story is the essence of hope. It really is. And it's something that I encourage you all to bring his message into your organizations, bring it into your companies, bring it into your homes, it, you know, kids, bring it to your kids, have it be, a, it's, and it's one of the things I appreciated is it deals with some very, very heavy subject matter but he writes it in a way where it's something digestible for all of us. You, you know, he writes it in a way where it sounds like you're not reading a book as much as you're having a conversation with him. And it feels like the whole time that he's sitting there with you, telling it to you and you're talking through with your friend and he's just kind of sitting around the campfire and telling it. And I think it's a powerful campfire table discussion that we should be having is really looking at perspective and the human experience and how powerful hope is and, I want to I want to fast forward to you coming to the US because I want to talk about a couple questions with that and how hope still plays a role in your life and also what what motivates you to today because I I really believe that human beings were compelled by finding some sort of emotion some sort of thing that we can latch on to hope or an piece of inspiration that will then drive our behavior when it's finally time for you to start to flee and we won't even have time to cover that whole process and it's the same thing you you think that he's already had a hard enough time and then you read a story of how he tries to escape and get out of first somalia and then kenya and it is not an easy process and he's literally shut down shut down shut down but there's a moment when you're leaving that you risk everything one final time to go see your mom and then you think you're saying goodbye you're you're terrified that al-shabaab's going to see you they're going to identify you that's going to be it you're at the airport and then your mom risks everything to come and see you one last time and see you off at the airport. You get out of the country and when you finally, this whole long process goes and you finally make it over to the US, one of the things that you, were, you find yourself doing and you're so eager to be in working is because you want to be able to start to be able to send money back to your mom right away, right? And I'm wondering what, what what drives you today now that you've been in american culture for did i did i lose you did you hear everything i said i saw it froze up just a second there i, I think i heard everything that you said okay so uh, when you get over to america and one of the things that's motivating you to go out and work and do whatever job you can find is because you want to find you want to be able to send money home to mom which is so different than one of the reasons why a lot of us go to work because a lot of us go to work in America thinking, well, if I go to work, then I'm going to be able to get this stuff. I'm going to be able to get the shoes, the car, the, those things that you see in American movies that become to be representative of American, quintessential American culture. 
I'm wondering if today, now you've been in the U.S. for about four years now, right? Four or five years. Does sending money home to your family and providing for them, is that still one of the main things that drives you in everything you do today? It is. I, um, I don't think I will ever be able to pay back to my mom. But um, so from day one, when I came to the U.S., uh, August 2014, up until now, so six years, I'm, I have been sending $400 back to my mother. So that's a lot of money, you know? If you put it all together, it becomes thousands. And um, that's one thing I feel very much responsible, but I also um, want to uh, progress, you know, myself in the U.S. And um, for the audience, I just want to be clear about one thing. Most of us immigrants who have family members and our family members are depending on us financially, not, not emotional or anything else, but financially, that we have to send them money it becomes such a difficult moment where like an American kiddo who graduates from college and goes on a road trip from coast to coast and be gone for a month, you know, um, or maybe sometimes if you feel like you're stuck, you can connect to your family and say, oh, I need $300 in this. It's just the opposite here where we, the kids, are responsible of our families. Um, they have to eat, they have to pay rent, they have to buy water. And um, so going to college, um, which is, you know, one thing, one great goal that I had from the moment that I landed in the U.S. Um, to go to college and graduate. So what has taken me so long is the fact that I can't really register for full-time, you know, college mm -hmm. where I can't go to full-time because I have to work. Not, I don't only have to work for myself to pay rent. I could live, you know, in a trailer. You know, I could live in the back of my car. That I can do that. That's not a problem to me. But the, the truth is, you know, nothing goes to my savings. And I said this in chapter 16, where when I joined my Somali friends in, um, in Portland, Maine, where everybody was saying, this idea of saving money is absolutely crazy. You know, these Americans do this. Why would we do that when we know that someone in our family is starving, you know, mm. needs, to, needs, you know needs to do that? And they have a valid point, which, you know, basically is um, it's really hard to, to put some money aside um, to think about the future and purchasing a house, you know, getting married or just doing something as, as much as so many Americans really do. Um, unless, you know, you have a higher degree and you're working, you know, 30, 40, uh, maybe $50 an hour, you know, which if you think about it, the first job that I got $10 an hour, you know, and supporting your family and putting some money aside and paying rent, it's not going to happen. You know, it can't come together. So there's that struggle. What's the hope? I think the hope is it works, you know. I mean, I know my family, there's no point where my family would say, we got enough, thank you. So now keep saving money. That's not gonna happen. As long as they're alive, and as long as I'm alive, this is not happening. So what is one way that this could slow down or stop? I have to sponsor my family to bring them over to the US. So that would allow me to not be able to invest in them anymore. Because if they come here, my sister can work, you know, her kids can work, my mom can work, she's still, you know, capable, whatever she can do, cleaning hotels or doing some farming and gardening, whatever, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do in this country. Well, because of the immigration system that we have today, that's not possible. 
So it seems like it's dragging on and it's so disappointing and things like that. So that is the complicated part of being in the U.S. physically and, you know, I'm trying to enjoy the moment as much as I can because this is a dream that, you know, I didn't randomly come here. I fought for it. I fought for this, you know, uh, uh, rights and, and, and being in, in this country is not something that I take so easily. So that's why I need to be heavily involved in everything. If it's a Black Lives Matter rally, you know, if we're talking about immigration stories, if we're talking about publishing a book to get the story out, if we're talking about sponsoring my family or supporting them in one way or another, and also standing up for the beautiful America that I had dreamed about growing up. I still have that image in my mind where we can live side to side happily and peacefully and we can have, you know, a bacon and toast and, and, and chicken and, and orange juice all together. Now I have a fridge full of food. It's interesting. I can wake up, you know, I can just fix whatever I want. You know, my coffee, my, you know, uh, 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 fried eggs, you know, um, and lunch, I have so many job options and dinner, I can sort of fix anything. My family still don't have this. They have never seen a fridge in their whole life. They do not have a television there. They don't have a microwave. And I keep trying to tell my mom the life that I have right now. And I understand it's way distant. You know, I have really not only moved in terms of land, you know, distance, but it's also that it, it feels like it's, I can no longer explain what I have here, mm. you know, my mother. And unless she comes over here and experiences herself, and I went to see that America where it allows people to be able to unite together. Um, even if it means temporarily, if my mother would hang out with me for a year and she decided to end, you know, the rest of her days in, in Somalia because that's a land that she understands or if she wanted to, you know, have go back to her nomadic life if Somalia ever becomes peaceful, I would love for that to happen. But at some point, it's a still a family separation. It's been 13 years since I had seen her. I cannot go to Somalia, it's too dangerous. She can't come over here because of the immigration policies that we have, which restricted Somalia and the Somalis. Um, and these aren't stories that so many people are really talking about. But if you talk to people like myself, immigrants who have one foot here and the other foot back home, it just becomes a headache, right? So how do we sleep? How, how do we get over these nightmares? You know, how do, we, uh, how do I survive these panic attacks every night where I just opened my eyes and I had just had a dream where my mom was you know, uh, being shot or there was a bomb, you know, in her house, which is something that happens almost every day. But it scares me to my core when I receive a phone call while I'm driving on the highway and it says, mom, I just have to slow down, hold to the, you know, shoulder, turn off the engine, pick up the phone. Because, I, you know, it's, it's usually a heart attack where it could be mom telling me that my sister is not home, something happened. You know, it's, it's always... It's not a happy story, basically. I mean, imagine if your mom calls you while you're actually going on a road trip in North Carolina, you, the, the first thing that comes to your mind is not, you, oh, my mom is in, at risk. You know, that, that's not. I, I, I have so many Americans, I hang out with them. And when their mom calls, they say, oh, my mom's calling. And you pick up. And they're talking about dinner. You know, what would you like tonight? You know, we have this yeah. and we have that. Or it could be that you're, you know, your mom is trying to plan Thanksgiving with you. So it's such a such a privilege, such a wonderful, you know, thing that we have in the U.S., but you can't understand it unless you have to hear our stories. Because I'm talking to my mother who tells me there was a bomb. 
and we don't know what happened, but I'm still breathing, but there's, you know, dust everywhere. Um, our window is gone, and those are the kind of stories, um, and I am here. So how, how do you handle that? It's not easy. So I do live here physically, but mentally, I'm really not escaping my past you know it, it's sort of dragging me on and on and um sometimes I, I just try to enjoy my life um there are there are moments where i tell my story at certain place let's say philadelphia and the group that invited me takes me to this fancy restaurant and here we're sitting and i'm really enjoying this beautiful life we're talking about life i'm sitting in a restaurant it's more like a movie and then one minute or one second my mom comes to my you know mm my head or she calls the phone and now I, I just have to give up everything else I'm doing. Um, so um, it's kind of a nightmare. Um, but we also have to deal with what, you know, what can you do to contribute to the change in America? Um, how the black people are seen? Um, how much of a risk can you be? Is it safe for me to run around here? Um, why am I identified as a black man? Why not? Why can't I be an American? Well, on top of everything else, why can't I be a human, right? I mean, we don't, we don't identify animals by color, by skin color. We don't say the red cow or the, the white cow or the black cow. You know, we don't do that. It's just, it's just, it's just a skin color, but we're all just, you know, we, we all bleed red, you know. Yep. That is who we are. But I think America's identity or somehow imposing the skin identity that, that I have to live with is, is, is not really something I've expected. And um, it's kind of scary more. You can't escape it because it's, the society is built on this way where, you know, maybe if I'm jogging around today, you know, um, and the police are looking for some black guy, there's a good chance that they just look at me and say, like, it might be him. You know, there's, there's all those kind of things. Whereas um, I'm living in Maine, which is definitely either number one or number two, whitest in the country. So it's a struggle. Hmm. Abdi. I want to, there's so much more I want to ask you, and I feel like we're just getting started, but I want to be respectful of your time. Before I ask my final question, where can people find you online? Is the best place to go your website? And if it is, what's the website that people should look at and reach out to you at? Uh, thank you. My website is callmeamerican.com, all one word. Um, you can look me up on social media. I have, uh, I think I have everything except uh, in, uh, uh, Snapchat. So you can find me on anything else, Instagram. Twitter, Facebook, um, or my, fa my, my website, callmeamerican.com. Um, and, um, or if you Google my name, it will pop up <laughs> somewhere. Abdi, this has been such an incredible conversation and I'm hoping, and you've shared so much. What, what you and I were talking beforehand and I was sharing with you that one of the things I found quite astounding from my personal experience in reading your story was how unaware I was of the plight in Somalia and just the immigrant plight in general. My, my experience with Somalia, which I'm almost ashamed to say, and I feel that I'm fairly informed and a fairly you know, perceptive individual, but I didn't realize it was so much of it was the movie Black Hawk Down or the, the other movies like a Captain Phillips or something like that, where it was just this very basic snippet of it. And nowhere was I anywhere aware of, or at least willing to acknowledge maybe just what was going on over there. And it really gave me pause to consider the immigrant plight and folks who are 
born into circumstances out of their control and who are wanting to make it over here and who are wanting to give themselves a chance at a better life. And so my question to you is this, what is it that we, and I was going to say we, but now you too, as you're an American, what is it that all of us who are Americans, and especially those of us who have not had the experience you had growing up, what is it that we need to know about the immigrant plight, the immigrant journey that we're not aware of, or at least it's not being discussed? And I know you've already shared a lot, but I'm wondering if there's maybe one more key thing that, for example, if I came away from this conversation with you, and I go and have meet up with some friends, and we start to talk about immigration and what's going on and whatnot. What is the thing that I should know that I may not know now that will help me evolve my perspective on it and then in turn be able to evolve and enlighten the perspectives of people that I may know? The current immigration um, that is happening across the world uh, either by conflict or by climate change, they are all humans. So that's one thing. Um, unfortunately, it seems like there is a, a misunderstanding or somehow perception out there that um, we are less of a human. Hmm. Right? We are not. We're complete human beings. To say this, um, I, I think a lot of us love music, a lot of us love movies, a lot of us are, love their culture. You know, we're a mix of everybody else. Immigration or immigrants or refugees are anything that you can find in the United States. Um, plus that these people have experiences and resilience and have really had endured so much. So I would love anybody out there who wants to know more about immigrants and refugees, first of all, to understand that their stories are human stories, that you can find a mother who protects her kids. Um, some of them just die that way by, by doing that. And uh, that 99.9% .9 of these refugees don't even make it to the United States. That they are somewhere else. So the idea, when we talked about immigration in the United States, you've, you've, it feels like the media is making it look like 99% of those refugees are storming into the United States. That is the, 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 you know, the thing that you get, but actually it's the opposite. It's a tiny bit, probably 9% that the US and Europe actually resettle and bring in into their countries. It's nowhere near at all, even you know, uh, uh, a, a fair amount of number at all. So, and, these immigrants love their countries. It's not that they hate their country and they're fleeing their country. It's just that there's a war, it's just that there's conflict and they want a better place to raise their kids. I hope if we understand that, if we understand them as a human story, or maybe one way to think about it is just think of, of, of you fleeing your neighborhood because of a conflict. You know, how would you like to be seen? How would you like to be portrayed? And whatever comes to your mind is exactly what those people are. That's powerful. Everyone, my goodness, is this one you're going to want to rewatch and re-listen to. I do not say it lightly, and I say it wholeheartedly when I say Abby's book, Call Me American, is with by far and away the most powerful and my favorite book I've read this year. It is one that I would highly, highly recommend all of you read and reread multiple times. It is one that I would recommend you share with your friends, your family, bring it into work. 
it is such an incredible story of resilience, hope. And I really, and I think what Abdi just said at the end, it's really a human story. It's the human spirit. I think that what you come to find throughout his journey, while he's going through all these hardships, why he's going through all these atrocities, why he's going through some of the worst things you can possibly imagine. And I'll promise you this, what you can imagine he might've gone through doesn't even compare to what he actually went through, he and his family went through. What you really find yourself going is he, he, I think he embodies the best of humanity. He embodies this resilience and this desire for hope and this commitment to family that I know for myself, I don't wanna speak for any of you, but I know for myself, I strive to, to tap into. And I think he just, he, he, he comes across as such an incredibly beautiful human being who wants to do better and to give himself a shot at a better life. And to hear that now he's been over in the country, he's been over in the U.S. for all this time, he hasn't seen his family for 13 years, and he's still working to now give that better life to his family. And I think it's something that we can all take away from that. We can all take away from those moments of childhood where we have these decisions to make and how they shape our life. And what I would really encourage you all to consider this is with Abdi's story is while you may not have grown up in his circumstances or faced his hardships or his challenges, that doesn't minimize whatever you've gone through. What it might do instead is to inspire in you and ask yourself if, if Abdi was able to find hope in orange juice, where might you find hope? If he's able still today to be driven by helping his family and making a difference in your li their life, what might you be still driven by today? If he's now recognizing this bigger global need for immigration and that they're human stories and committed to getting out there, and I love you made that distinction. Why, and I'm so with you, why we distinguish human beings by skin color and tribes, it blows my mind when we, we call dogs, dogs, cows, cows, cats, cats. But whether with humans, we love to put those labels on there and try to make us as removed from one another as possible. And so whether it's, him now recognizing this bigger immigration thing and, and, and saying to all of us that, remember the, the, the fear that you might have if you were all of a sudden had to be removed from your village, your home, your town from the worst possible things, what fear you might have, what hope you might be clinging onto, that's the same hope they are. And him taking this now to this bigger mission of doing that, it's something to consider for yourself, what mission might you undertake to contribute to humanity? What mission might you take? I know for many of you, it's on your hearts to help those who need the help, but you may not be sure how. I think that one of the things Abby highlighted so beautifully today is you don't necessarily need to know the how, you just need to have a why. And if you start to lean into that why, the how will begin to reveal itself. And it often just takes goodwill, a good heart, and a, a sound commitment to making that happen to be able to see it through. Abby, this has been absolutely incredible. I am horribly selfishly wanting to keep this conversation going, but I want to be respectful of yours and everyone else's time. Again, everyone, the book is Call Me American. Highly recommend it. And it's one that I think we are going to see all around, or at least we need to. It's an incredible story. And I encourage you to check it out. Abby, thank you so much for being here. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so very much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We will see you next time, everyone, on another edition of A Handful of Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're finding value in these conversations, please rate and review on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite place is to listen to